0: That purpose thing is really important to me. Uh, And I think we need to be proud of what we do as an industry. I think it's too easy to hide away from, you know, those who would incorrectly compare recruitment to other sectors. We change lives.
1: Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. My special guest today is Neil Carberry. Neil's the CEO of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Prior to joining the REC, Neil was the managing director at the Confederation of British Industry, leading the CBI's work on the labor market, skills, energy, and infrastructure. Neil actually started his career in recruitment with an exact search firm called Fraser Watson in 1999, and then went on to do a postgrad uh, in HR at London School of Economics before joining the CBI. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Mark. Delighted to join you. All right. So we're actually recording late December, but by the time this goes out, it's going to be the new year. So happy new year.
0: Well, happy new year to you. And uh, (laughs) let's hope it's a a slightly better one than
1: 2020 proved to (laughs) be. Never before have I been so happy to start a new year, I can tell you.
0: Well, the standard joke I make uh, with people is that there are 12 months in, in 2020, January, February, March, 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 March. And that's definitely how it's felt.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So listen, everyone in the UK knows the REC, but for our international audience, can you briefly explain what the Recruitment and Employment Confederation does?
0: So the REC is the UK's professional and industry body for recruitment uh, uh, firms, everything from uh, MSP uh, providers to uh, local high street firms, generalists, uh, sector specialists, all scales scales and sizes. About uh, 3,300 companies in membership and about 10,000 individuals uh, working with us through our REC professional scheme. And for those who are working internationally, you know, if you're in the US, you know, the American Staffing Association. If you're in Australia, New Zealand, you know, the RCSA, very much equivalent organizations. And actually, we work very closely together under the auspices of the World Employment Confederation, uh, of which I'm a board
1: member. All right. Awesome. That's a massive percentage of the industry that's part of the REC. I ten mean, 10,000 individual members and over 3,000 companies. Um, that's it's, uh, quite incredible. I, that, I think that gives you quite a unique vantage point for understanding what's really going on in our industry and what the future looks like for recruiters. So I'm hoping that you're going to have a glimmer of good news for us today.
0: Well, let's see, let's see what we can do. You're right. The REC covers about 80% of uh, the turnover in the UK industry uh, in membership, and that gives us a very privileged insight into what's going on, both to support the, the industry in terms of uh, thinking about our plans ahead, but also to represent the industry outside uh, recruitment and staffing, which I think is a really important role we play.
1: Wow. So I didn't realize that the, the REC membership represents 80% of all the revenue generated by the recruitment industry
0: in yeah, the UK. absolutely.
1: Wow. Okay. So listen, let's just talk generally about where are we now and then what's next for, for the recruitment industry? Like, can you just give us some context here in terms of what you've seen over 2020 and all the conversations and the research that you guys are doing? And then what are you sort of forecasting is going to happen next?
0: So, um, you know, 2019 was not a stellar year for, for the industry. It was tough in all sorts of ways, but, you know, people were making good progress. Um, actually, in many ways, 2020 started looking like a better year. Um, you know, lots and lots of uh, recruiters I talked to had really good Januarys and Februarys. If you think back then uh, to, to then, we were coming out of, uh, a long period of political instability in the UK, and uh, we seemed to be on a on a clearer path. There was a lot of activity going on. Um, then you got to the the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, I think it's fair to say that that weekend of the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th of March, you know, whiteboards across the industry just emptied. They emptied the perm jobs, and they dropped significantly in in terms of temp placements. If you ask me anecdotally what I think happened in late March, I think we lost about 40% of temp uh, turnover and maybe more like 80% of immediate perm work. Now, the bounce back from that started to happen almost immediately. And of course, uh, temp is much more real time uh, because companies are billing as people are working, whereas there's a longer pull through for... Um, uh, for uh, permanent work. But we just published at the end of December our Industry Trends Survey, and that stacks up this story that 2020 was a year that saw uh, the industry take quite a significant hit in turnover terms. And a lot of the struggle for uh, businesses was to maximise that turnover, but also to find the ways to break even. And, um, Through through the year, in in how they were managing their own business and the areas they were focusing on. And I think by and large, most recruiters I talk to in the UK would say um, that they achieved that goal. You know, a phrase I hear a lot is if you'd offered me where I am now back in May, I'd have taken it. Uh, And partially that's, you know, good husbandry of the uh, the organize organizations are running by our recruitment leaders and partially it is that the UK labor market has bounced back I think temp started to come back quite quickly even before the full lockdown was eased so thinking about June perm took a bit longer maybe maybe coming back more robustly in uh, in July and all of our surveys have shown is vacancy numbers uh, if you look at one metric, posting to job boards, in the first week of December, uh, postings reached the level they were at, at at the beginning of March, so fully recovered. Uh, clearly a very different mix between sectors, and it has been a story of different sectors this year. If you're supplying uh, workers into warehouses, logistics, drivers, healthcare, it's, you, you're probably a, you know, pretty much there or ahead of where you were last year. Other sectors, um, hospitality, most obviously, uh, but actually some other parts of healthcare. Given that electives ceased happening in the health service in the UK in the in the first lockdown, um, uh, significantly behind. So, very lumpy story, very uh, regional story as well. City centres, because the lockdown is clearly suffering more. So, industries, uh, so companies that are serving central London having having more challenges than companies that are serving business parks in the in the suburbs. Um, but broadly, through the autumn, what we saw was a real kind of uptick in confidence uh, across jobs postings, across what clients were telling us through our jobs outlook and through uh, what uh, we were seeing reported in billings by REC members. Um, when we went into that second lockdown in the mid to late autumn, I think there was a lot of concern that that would turn around, and it really hasn't. We've now seen the data from that point and there's a flattening off, basically, of uh, uh, of activity and then it's picked up again. Now, we are, uh, as you say, heading into the beginning of a new year. The winter is long, so we might still see more uh, coronavirus-controlled uh, breaks, uh, control breaks on activity. I think the thing that's changed now is that recruiters know how to trade through these. We've learned. Um, and so I, I think if there are more of those, there'll be more of a stay. And of course, we can see the finish line now with the vaccine. So, uh, as an industry, clearly turnover down on last year, but actually swift action and a robust labour market recovery. I think we are. It's already showing that uh, showing in the Economist predictions that unemployment will peak lower than than we might have thought uh, previously. And uh, I'm a bit more optimistic about 2021.
1: Yeah, optimism, I think, is a good way of capturing it. You know, especially with the vaccine now being uh, distributed, then hopefully that gives confidence to employers that, you know, they can go ahead with their hiring plans, which in turn impacts us. You mentioned Industry Trends Survey. Now, I know the REC is heavily involved in, in research. Is this something that is only for members or can, can people listening get, get hold of that somehow?
0: So headlines will be available on the REC website. Right. Um, uh, the, the full survey obviously uh, goes to members. Um, yep. What's really interesting, though, is what we're doing in addition to that. And, and that'll be coming out in the next few weeks, actually. Uh, so do keep an eye on the REC website once you've listened to the podcast today. As well, we, we've kind of done the measurement of what the industry built in its last financial year. And we've um, made some real progress in terms of thinking about the number of placements in that year and some flash data on the impact. Uh, of the March to September period, which is in the report and which I've given you a flavor of already. The next stage is actually we're digging deeper. We're looking at the real impact of the industry on opportunity, on productivity for clients. And this goes to the heart of what I think is a big challenge for us all in recruitment, which is to make a value-based rather than a price-based argument for what we do. It's a human industry. It's a high-scale industry. Uh, we, We should be deeply embedded with clients, their trusted advisor, and you know, if you go and do a uh, into a, a merger or an acquisition as a as a client, you don't pay your lawyers on a contingency basis, and that's a that that's a challenge for all of us um, because. But the value of what we do will become progressively more clear. And I actually, think that the the fundamentals of the UK labour market, in particular the tightness of labour supply, which will come back quite quickly as we recover. Uh, gives us an opportunity to reset our client relationships. That's something that the REC wants to work hard to support uh, recruiters to do. And our upcoming report really shows the value that the industry delivers on productivity, diversity and inclusion. Some of these things that have a more imperceptible but clear impact on the prosperity of the country.
1: I'd love to dive into that further because I agree 100% with what you're saying and I love the idea of this being about delivering more value rather than it just being about price. Um could you elaborate a bit on the value that the industry brings rather, you know, apart from just obviously finding people for jobs like you you mentioned some of that value is not obvious on the surface.
0: Well, I think if you think of the uh, the industry as just matching, then uh, then it becomes very transactional. Mm-hmm. And two things: one, I think matching will be autom—is uh, already getting progressively more automated—and we'll see more competitors, and in fact, clients themselves, with a bit of investment, can start to to do that kind of thing. I don't think they can necessarily do it as well as we can, but they can they can give it a go. I actually, for me, I think the value is somewhere else. It's in uh, how do you bring the right people into your business that support your culture, and then get them properly engaged with uh, direction of travel, proper expectations. We know from REC work uh, uh, over years that the wrong hire can cost a client business hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, to uh, to get right. In that picture then you want to get it right. And um, if you think about advice on uh, employer brand, you think about routes to market, you think about inclusion and the really clear work, um, I think uh, you know, Bruce Daisley put this really well, uh, well, well in his book, The Joy of Work, You know how we belong, how we come into a group and how we feel we know what the group is about and, uh, and how we set our goals is actually critical to our long term performances as employees well recruitment is hugely important to that so all of the, so all of that plus the fact that you know your clients in TA and HR they're seeing their world change around them as well because business plans are changing and they're thinking well how does my people plan fit into this new business that's being designed uh, in the line that creates a space for advice and for workforce planning and for employee employer brand and for employee value proposition and for diversity and inclusion thinking and all of the complexities of humans that a truly professional recruitment organization should want to be part of. So the delivery is part of it, it's always going to be part of it, but it is a genuine professional service. And I think you deep client relationships, that that's how you get to that that value space. Um, and it's also how we protect ourselves from uh, uh, from commodification of the services we offer.
1: I'd like to circle back to that because that's, um, that's a real frustration for those who want to provide a value-added service that is a, a true professional service rather than just a transactional, commoditized, price-driven one. Uh, but before, before that, could, could you, do you have any examples of, like, um, even anecdotally about our industry bringing value to employers above and beyond what they would be able to achieve themselves?
0: Um, so I've got a really good story. And uh, it will remain anonymous, but we've got a member who works with um, a poultry company. So pretty hard end of the labour market this, so chicken uh, factory. And in redesigning the, the work in the chicken factory, introducing new machinery, uh, the mem- our member was able to work with them to redesign how the human beings did their part of the work. So moved from standing to sitting, uh, redesigned the space with the feedback from some of the people that they'd placed, both pen and pound. Ended up in a situation where they were actually designing better jobs for people to do, more productive jobs for people to do. So at no cost, what you were doing was you were increasing retention and you were, uh, 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 and you were improving the attraction of the work. One interesting thing is that they also improved the diversity. So, uh, uh, the, where the jobs, once they became seated and redesigned, so had a much better, Balance between men and women in the jobs than than previously. So that kind of thinking about how does my HR planning fit into my business planning, my capital investment plan, um, and helping TA and HR people in clients think about it. That should be a, a critical role for the industry. And you know, clients have a tendency of paying some consultant somewhere to think about these things. Those consultants are neither as expert nor uh, as cost-effective as we are as recruiters. So we need to get into that space.
1: Interesting, interesting. I think uh, you shared an example with me previously on how um, there was empirical evidence that third-party recruiters were delivering better against diversity and inclusion um, than companies were able to achieve themselves. Do you remember that? Um, Yeah, it's
0: part of our our, our work that we're doing at the moment. A really clear story that um, if you uh, randomly select uh, someone from a black or other minority ethnic uh, background who's working and someone uh, from a white background, the person from the black or other minority ethnic uh, 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 background is much more likely to have found their job via an agency. Hmm. And that speaks to you know, the value of proper process, uh, the value of thinking through how things happen. And you know, one of the things we think the industry can be is a real agent for change. We talk at the REC about making great work happen. Um, and we mean it. You know, we mean that the industry is an engine of growth for clients, and opportunity for, um, uh, for candidates. You know People listening, that's why I did it when I started, and it's why lots of us do, uh, uh, do it still. And I think the more of that opportunity we deliver as an industry, the better our, our reputation will be, and the more effective we will be as, as companies, the more profitable we will be. So that purpose thing is really important to me, uh, and I think we need to be proud of what we do as an industry. I think it's too easy to kind of to hide uh, to hide away from you know those who would incorrectly compare recruitment to other sectors. Um, we change lives. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Um, in fact, I interviewed a, an entrepreneur and they have a target based on number of lives changed rather than say, this is the number of placements we, we make. And they've done something like, you know, 10,000 lives changed or something they've achieved in the last, you know, 15 years, which I love that, uh, that thinking.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the important thing is not, it's not soft and fluffy. It's not uncommercial. It, it's it's absolutely commercial. Your commercial yeah. success is linked to how well aligned the goals of the people in the business are, and purpose is what helps you do that. You know, I certainly think we get more uh, effective change and process, uh, uh, progress from the REC team when purpose is clear. We've seen that this year. You know, the the amount of innovation that we've done in our business uh, in terms of delivering everything. Remotely and online, right up to and including formal off-call regulated examinations, um, is ha- has been stunning. And one of the things I, I often say is, you know, if you look back across, across the year, you wouldn't wish this year on anyone, but the REC of December, January 2020, 2021 is a better and fitter and more effective servant of the recruitment industry in the UK than the one in March. I loved the one in March. It was great. This one is no better.
1: Yeah. Do you know what? Um, That's probably the most significant upside of this whole thing is that it's forced innovation and it's forced us all to really get super creative and, um, you know, accelerate maybe plans that we had for the future and make them happen now. Um, What, You know, just on that subject, what are you seeing your members doing to drive that innovation, change the way they're working in a way that is actually ultimately going to mean that they are more effective than they might otherwise have been?
0: So I think that one of the things that's come through most clearly, uh, and I remember talking to Rona Drake's at Empresaria about this at great length, and Rona's a great thinker on on these things, is it's kind of two who's. Uh, firstly, who's looking after your clients for you? Because we de- definitely had an experience when furlough happened, and and firms were furloughing consultants that that the client relationship was lost a bit. Um, in as much as it was always between one person on the client side and and a, perhaps a senior consultant or a uh, or, or one of the directors on the uh, on the agency side, and that sense of needing to put a team around the client so that the client contact remains robust as it has come through really, really clearly. And on the the, the second one then is who is the client? Because I think in this world, go back to something I said earlier, I think that just the TA, the talent acquisition team, or just the HR team probably isn't enough uh, because the critical thing right now, and this is where I see a lot of innovation happening, is understanding where the business itself is going. So it's understanding the business plan and almost kind of conspiring with the talent acquisition and the HR team to design the people plan that gets you there. And some of that might not be stuff that you as an agency will deliver. It might come from elsewhere. But those two things seem to me important to those deep, productive relationships going forward, whether they end up in a kind of MSP arrangement or a PSL arrangement or whatever arrangement suits that particular client relationship. So I'm seeing people thinking about, you know, 360s always been popular. As an approach, seeing more chat about 180 coming back in terms of structuring uh, how we deal, deal with clients. And then obviously, the, alongside that, you've got the, the whole question of rec tech. Um, and what I'd say about technology is it's going to be necessary to remain competitive to be able to automate the stuff that is automatable so your, cust- your consultants can be doing the things that consultants do best, the human stuff. Um, but it's not sufficient to compete. I think just automating, technology will not save us on its own. Uh, The most innovative firms I see have got a twin track. They're thinking about what consultants should do and redesigning consultants' work while also thinking about what the tech stack they need is for the business. One of the things I'm thinking about at the REC is how we can better advise uh, companies on acquiring new technology because the challenge in the field is there are an awful lot of vendors out there, and every vendor has a perfect product for you uh, and the great value of paying a not-for-profit at, at the REC that's entirely funded by our members subscriptions is there's only one pe- group of people we answer to, and that's the members and so anything that we do on that kind of thing is is completely unbiased and I'm thinking about that as part of a kind of a, a, a jacked up um, business advice strategy for, for the REC going into next year.
1: Mm, okay, interesting. Um, so we where we've ended up is going circling back to this issue of commoditization and the way that we're embedding with clients and the, the, the value of the work we're doing with them. What ideas have you got, Neil, to help? I mean, or what advice are you giving your members, I guess would be a better way of putting this, to help them to achieve that? Because sometimes... There's certainly the willingness on the part of the recruitment agency. They want a deeper client relationship. They want multiple contact points within the client organization. They want to be that trusted advisor. Um, but the client is not um, thinking along the same lines and wants to, even though it's, they don't necessarily realize it's, Working against their best interests, but they want to have more of a traditional approach multi agency contingency, low fee um everything goes through a vendor management system. first person who chucks the c v into the system gets the fee uh you don't know really which of these jobs is important and you're not getting feedback. Therefore, when you talk to your candidate, you really have nothing to tell them about why or why not they've been selected and, and so on. Like That's kind of like the worst case, but that still happens a lot. What, what advice do you have for, for your members on how we can help our clients to, to move to a better relationship?
0: So probably the first thing to say is it's tough. It is really tough. Uh, your point about VMS is I absolutely agree with, um, and it won't come quickly. Um, having said that, uh, we've got two ears and one mouse, and it's usually best to use them in that ratio in client relations. Um, it's about crafting the opportunities to have a different discussion. I've done a series of podcasts for the REC during this year uh, looking at different uh, different angles on the industry. And I've had quite a few with uh, people on the client side who I trust implicitly. Jane Haynes at GSK, my ACAS Council colleague, Ruth Penfold from BP Launchpad. And, and what they've said is what gets their time and their attention is something that feels a bit different, is an idea or a thought process. And, of course, that's got to be driven by where their business is now. So. Our advice is firstly understand where is my client's problem and pain point. And that that requires lots of, you know, lots of the best people in the industry gave one bit of advice in April and May, which is uh use this as an opportunity to have a, comfort, a conversation with clients when you don't have anything on the table. Yeah. Um, and then build to that and start to shape ideas and just try to carve a little idea space. And you have to do that at a certain level. It has to be done at a senior enough level where people have a bit of leeway. HR directors are often good for this. Um, And then you can start to have a discussion about, okay, where's the business going? What's the problem? And where do we go from here? And then the wind is at your back a little bit Mm -hmm. because uh, we're learning already that high unemployment does not mean... Every job gets filled. We're already struggling with drivers, with people in warehousing, with uh, people in the food chain. um, As we kind of lose some numbers of staff from the EU, um, as we know that the generation we're bringing into the labour market at the moment, those who are born between 2000 and 2010, um, is smaller than the one that we're seeing leave the labour market, those who are born between 55 and uh, 65 there is there is a, a squeeze on uh, available talent in the UK right now. Uh, there's then complexity about skills development and how you develop skills effectively. There are a whole slew of problems that HR directors have. And I think actually the firm with the sharp ideas, I've seen some great examples. One of our board members at... Uh, at the REC is working with smart meters, and he's he's got a centre where he's got uh, people coming in, training up with them to as smart meter installers, and then putting them straight into the field. So they're they're taking on the training function, uh, which is absolutely fascinating as a uh, as a model. But you know that's not going to be right for everyone. It's right for his clients and the clients he's talked to, and I think that that process of more senior client relationships built slowly is the only way to do this. And we probably do face a long period of, of due running, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the, the kind of first CV into the VMS, um, uh, contingency approaches with us for a while, but we have to, we have to transition from it over time because the trouble with races to the bottom is eventually you win it and you're at the bottom.
1: Exactly. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000 when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and... He helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own Personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. You know, this is really interesting. I think differentiation is a topic I'm I'm really passionate about. And, you know, we can't just push all the blame onto the client. We need to think about, well, what can we do as an industry or what can each of us do as individual recruiters or as, as business owners to... Rethink our service offering and make sure that it does match up with clients' problems, pain points, and, and where their business is going. And uh, that you are adding unique value that your competitors may, may not be.
0: Um, well, and and not, not writing business that, do, that doesn't help you and move the market south. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, that's, and that's a difficult and brave decision, uh, decision to make. But it's, in the long run, it's the right one.
1: Yes. No, absolutely. Not, not accepting business. That's, you know, that's not.
0: But we believe in our product. We believe in our products. Yeah. We don't have, we shouldn't have to knock down uh, the price because for everything we've already talked about, we know it's valuable. Yeah. No, that's why, that, that's why government is looking to recruiters to advise on getting people back into work because they, you know, DWP work coaches in the UK are not are, are very skilled at helping people who are a long way from the labour market understand the world of work. They're really not very good in helping people navigate uh, recruitment processes.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you you touched on this earlier, but I I, I, th- I just wanted to return to it briefly. Is that the public perception of the recruitment industry, and what is the REC doing, and what do Individual recruiters need to do in order to improve that.
0: So, c- can I just be a bit provocative on this for a okay, second? Okay, go for it. The people who think the public perception of the recruitment industry is lowest are people who work in the recruitment industry. When we look at our survey data, it's actually a lot better than than we might think. Okay, and, and you know our, our and our mm. uh, our data. Um, is really positive about what clients think recruiters deliver. Mm. Um, I think we are a bit bashful, and I think we often t- we're quite oper- we've been quite operational as an industry. And I think more time spent driving at the things we can really change that are more strategic. Talking about inclusion, uh, talking about uh, candidate experience. You know, this year is a real opportunity. Um, you know, we're talking to each other now, and you've invited me into your home, and I've invited you into mine. There's a there's a note of humanity to 2020,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, that is helpful and effective. Effective recruitment processes are, after all, human processes, mm-hmm. um, and they require careful handling. This is a skilled role, a skilled job that that is done by skilled professional services professionals. Um, and we need to really commit to that.
1: Fantastic, I love that. So, what do what else do we, as an industry, need to do, though, in order to ensure that we are relevant to clients' needs? You know, going forward, uh, you touched on automation and how that will, over time, uh, change a little bit what we do, but. What, what should recruiters and recruitment business owners be doing now to really be prepared?
0: Well, we talk a lot at the REC about recruiters as jobs experts, work experts. And the world of work is changing an awful lot right now. Um, and you know, I'm not a great fan of all the hot takes to say the office is dead. I just genuinely don't believe that's true. We're social a- animals. I've got enough members of REC staff who uh, would literally pay me to reopen the office right now um, because they are desperate to get back there. Equally, I've got some members of staff who would happily not go back again. They're very happy working at home. But fundamentally, we're heading to a world of very individualized work arrangements. Um, The example I often use is if this new mixed model means people have to go to an office two days a week, maybe, or three days a week, well, if your job's in London, that means you could live in Plymouth or you could live in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And that means a lot of things for pay. Uh, it means a lot of things for negotiating packages. Um, there's, a, there's a complexity in all of this that we haven't seen before. Um, and you know, skilled professionals have some advantage there. But I do think it is about understanding uh, the dynamics of the labour market, uh, the the scope of supply in your specialist area. I think specialism all, always kills in this space, knowing the market, um, and then thinking about where the market's going next. I mean, it's difficult to say what where Brexit ends up in terms of what it delivers in in terms of st- the sectors which will be strong in the United Kingdom, but. Pretty clearly, we've seen that just this year that if you are in a, in certain IT fields, you haven't really had a recession. You know, IT some fields in IT have been strong right through the year. Um, so I think that strategic thinking about where the market's going and where the growth potential is is really important, and it's why we're investing more in our uh, research capacity in 21 to to ramp up the support we offer recruiters in terms of thinking about you know, where next, where the growth areas? Uh, you know, I know one or two REC members who had a long, who I had a long discussion with in the autumn of 2019 about life sciences. Uh, they're feeling pretty good right now about their decision at the end of 2019 because the UK life sciences industry has been a game changer and is going to continue growing fast. So I think that, that strategic view on the development of the labor market is really important.
1: Awesome, all right. What are you most proud of uh, from your tenure thus far with the REC?
0: Um, I'm most proud of how we've reacted to this, actually. I was going to say uh, the kind of digitization and the rebrand and the tone of voice. Basically, I came in and tried to make the REC sound more like recruiters and and you know make us easier to deal with. And I think we did that. But in reality, in March, uh, we faced two things. One, a massive increase in our workload. So we dealt with twice as many phone calls from members this year as last year. Uh, 12,000. So if I give you back to the, wow. to the, the, uh, uh, the 3,300 members number I gave you, uh, at, at the top of the show, um, the average REC members phoned our legal helpline four times this year. Wow. Um, so that kind of scale of stuff, the the hub, uh, the coronavirus hub, the um, uh, the move of our helplines uh, to a world where people were answering them from home rather than in the office, the move to online exams, being just about the first sector association in the UK to run a fully digital conference, and keeping that really that uh, conference really commercially focused. That that and, and th- that work that I can't I can't take credit for it. It's been the REC team. That's probably what I'm proudest of in my time in the REC. Having said that, that new website and the tone of voice and the branding works really good. I, I think <laughs> I, I think it. I think for the super long term, that was the right place to start. But the 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 the, the way the team have stepped up this year in terms of support of uh, members. I think is absolutely right, and that's what you, you've got to do at the RSC. You've got to go towards the sound of gunfire. So we ramped up in March and April, just as the sector was falling away. We've done some work this autumn to to retool ourselves for 21, because that's when we've had the time to think about it. And We put a new management team in place to really drive things for, forward. And of course, I come back to the point: we are a recruiters' organisation. So you know, we've had to. Uh, look at things like uh, making sure we don't charge members any more next year than we charged them this year, because it would be wrong to after a year like this. And we've been able to deliver that uh, with some uh, uh, with some really careful planning, marketing.
1: Right. Ah, awesome. That's really uh, that's really cool, Neil. And I actually have f- found a lot of my clients, recruitment business owners, also have stepped up. I think everyone has sort of had to step up this year and work harder and do more, mm. even maybe for the same or less, you know, yeah. money and resources than they, they, they had. But, um, yeah, uh, it has been a, a story about people, you know, um, working together or coming together in order to support each other. So.
0: You know, well, I, I was speaking to a local recruiter in the deep Southwest yesterday, one of our members, uh, and she was telling me about how, you know, she has one big local competitor and, you know, they used to be, uh, So we say, they used to fence off against each other uh, quite a lot. And actually, they've developed quite a strong relationship through this year in terms of navigating through all of this. And I've seen that right up to the biggest firms in the in the sector this year, mm. where yeah. if you go back five, 10, 15 years, if we got together in a room, everyone had always had the best quarter ever. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and actually now you know, I found in the spring when we were bringing government ministers in to meet groups of 15 20 uh, really senior people in the industry to talk about how you make furlough work for people who aren't employees um, that we had a much more on the level conversation very kind of engaged and very focused on the interests of all of us and not just one of us and that maturity. I think mm. will serve the industry well for years to come. And I think it's picked up in exactly what you're saying in terms of the way leaders across the industry have uh, have stepped up this year.
1: Mm. You know, wh- while we're on the subject, uh, the, the theme of the show is resilience. And I think the industry has shown great resilience and um, during this year. But for you, for you personally, Neil, what would you say has been one of your biggest challenges, let's say?
0: you know i talk we talk a lot about uh working from home, and my experience in the spring was not that it was living at work mm. uh, I, and I know many uh particularly owner operators of recruitment businesses have felt the same um, you know, I think I've had about four days off since uh March twelfth um, but the purpose is strong and we've pushed on through but I think the thing that I've learned and I think it's been reflected back at me by lots of people is you know we all have a fuel tank and we need to remember that that sometimes it's pretty close to empty so I think making sure that you're taking time for self-care even when it feels like there's a hundred and one urgent things I worked with someone years ago who used to constantly remind me of the question: "Is it urgent or is it important?" Mm-hmm. And a getting question. a sense of what's important to where we want to be—not tomorrow, but in six months or a year's time—I think is particularly helpful. I've taken up running again after I have to admit. Um, just do the numbers. Thirteen years old but off. Um, I and I found that massively helpful um making sure that we're carving out t- thinking time actively throwing stuff off the back of the lorry that doesn't need to be on the lorry so we can focus on the things that really matter and i think increasingly as business leaders focusing on our human relations as well because we're not seeing people every day um though all those things are boost to resilience um mm-hmm. it, we are after all uh human beings and kindness is the first thing we should start with. And that means and kindness to ourselves as well as kindness to each other.
1: Yes. I love that. Um, thanks for sharing that. It's a, it's a value that many recruitment companies do not like when you're coming up with their company values, I don't know any that use kindness as one of their corporate values, but I think it, I think it should be. So I've, I've got a kind of
0: values. I struggle with values. Um, And what I mean by that is um, I think values are personal. I think what we expect in companies is behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I have seen across the industry in terms of thinking about how we change is lots of, one, one of our uh, REC our council members said this to me uh, in the summer, is lots of decisions being made about the behaviours we want in our business. Mm-hmm. So uh, I saw uh, firms thinking about the pattern of furlough so that you didn't have people in the office burning themselves out while other people were getting progressively frustrated at home. Uh, and you were managing that so everyone had some purpose but not were not overstretched. Where you had re- restructurings taking place, and people were asking the question, well, what sort of business do we want to be? You know, at the REC, we talk a lot about uh, collaboration, openness, ownership, learning, and enjoyment as the things we want to we want to deliver. You know, the, that should be our experience of each other as REC staff, but it's also the relationship that we want to have with uh, with, with members, and um, and that's helped us an awful lot. Even starting, we you know, we've started to. Uh, use that framework in our uh, reviews. So obviously people have, as you would always have to have, pretty tough targets in what we ask them to do. But we're also asking them to to, to think about how they do it. And that's about, in a hard-nosed commercial sense, that's actually about the productivity the business generates, getting, getting everyone faced in the same direction. And it, kind of an unlooked bit for benefit of it is, of course... That most of the objectives that we set for REC staff back in January have been somewhat overtaken by events. But but the behavioral stuff is just as relevant now as it was then.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, from what you're describing, I would argue that the values and the behaviors really work together, right, uh, in that context. Um, you, just, let me go back to your running. How, we have a lot of runners who've follow the who subscribe to the show or uh and listen to it when they're going so chances are there's you people want to feel, right now if you want to, to feel,
0: good, feel good about your pacing follow me on Strava you're definitely quicker than me <laughs> uh, <laughs> well they, um... I will
1: do that Neil because I'm on Strava but uh I think yeah I, I I'm not running fast by any means but I've I'm quite proud of myself because when this 12 months ago I hadn't. I wasn't even ever a runner, but uh, I just I could barely run a kilometer. And just the other day, I did 15k, and Amazing. that's just been a steady progression over the last 12 months.
0: Whoop! Yeah, I'm trying to do 5k three times a week, and Great. mostly succeeding. It's more difficult this time of year, obviously, because you don't. I don't it's really dark, like going you know, running in the dark. Yeah. Um, having said that, um, yeah, my story as a runner is I ran my last half marathon. Uh, on about the twenty fifth of April two thousand and seven, okay. and then uh, my daughter was born on the eighth of May, and I have <laughs> hadn't run since then. I did a bit of cycling, but I hadn't really run since then. And I play rugby still, uh, play and coach rugby. Um, but um, getting back to it, it's been really helpful. It's been really therapeutic, and you kind of learn that the value of it is is what's happening in your head as well as what's happening in your legs.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. No, for sure. Um, Do you mind if I ask you, Neil, you'd mentioned to me previously about imposter syndrome. Can you speak a little on that?
0: Yeah, I think it's quite powerful for leaders to be really open and honest about how they feel. And, you know, I can come off as quite white male Oxbridge. And the reason for that is I am white, I am male and I am Oxbridge. Um, But I'm also working class and comprehensive school educated and uh not very comfortable with uh with uh kind of high society or whatever you you want to call it which i think a lot of people in the recruitment industry are because you know we we're we're self-made men and women often um, and the reason that I, I like to talk about this is the number of times during my career where I felt everyone else has a map in their back pocket and I don't. Mm. And I've realized over time that what they they don't, what they have is actually sky high confidence that in some way, in some form has come to them in the past. Um, And it's more about realizing everyone is busking and doing their best and feeling comfortable with that and doing the hard work to, to get you where you need to go. And, you know for me um you know I one of the things I'm proudest of in my career is i work on the World pay Commission which gives one and a half million people a, a pay rise every year um, and that piece around economic inclusion uh, across across different diversity strands but actually you know I think socioeconomic mobility really matters and it matters more than ever now because if you look at the the labour market data, actually prime age people in the workplace are doing okay. When you start to look at the unemployment numbers for young people, they are absolutely horrific. Um, So there's a real kind of injunction on us all to do something about that. And it's partially about us opening up opportunity. But it's also about encouraging people to believe that they can do things. Because I don't think 16 or 18-year-old me would have believed I could have done what I do now. Um, and I think many of us in the industry would feel that way. Uh, you know, that, that classic phrase of I fell into recruitment, um, you know, which we all did, including me. Um, I'd like to change that over time, but equally, recruitment has given us a pathway to show what we can do. And um, that sense of everyone's busking it, it's actually about how you put your mind to achieving something and the networks you build and the help you ask for and the openness about your mistakes. You know, I think for years I was, ter- because it all felt fragile, I was terrified that one mistake would see me kind of fall off the cliff. And, and that's not true. And, you know, if you come from a different background, maybe you know that. I certainly didn't. Uh, so a lot of what I do around the edges of my career it. it It is really about trying to encourage young people, particularly young people from less advantaged backgrounds, to feel that they can do things. And one of the things we can all do, and I think particularly in our industry where so many of us didn't go to public school or have a trust fund, because actually... Recruitment is a massively meritocratic industry. Yeah, um, true. I I think um, I think the more those of us who have leadership positions talk about our self doubt, which, to be fair, just for me to be absolutely clear, I think self doubt is a sign of intelligence and ability to lead. Um, I think the better for all of
1: us. Here, here. Well said. Well said. Um, so, if people want to find out more about the REC and the work you're doing it's rec.uk.com is that right that's right yeah fantastic and when they visit the website I mean there's a lot on there um what is is there something in particular you want people to search up or to get involved in um you know as if they're new to the REC
0: so I think uh, a couple of things we were doing uh, some work at the moment uh, around diversity and inclusion which we've um, people, this might cause a few uh ears to prick up. We're doing jointly with AppSco because it's so important to our industry. So, if when you read this, uh, you want to have a look at that, that, that would be uh, that would be uh, really interesting. We're looking for de- details and feedback, but really do have a look at the work that we're doing on the economic and social value of the industry because what we want to do is tell stories about the difference we make, not just come up with big numbers. So, progressively through December and January, we'll see uh, new bits of work start to appear that really tell a different story about the industry. And uh, engaging with us, helping us, whether it's video, social media, uh, uh, written uh, examples, we are looking for new ways to tell the human story of the industry to really get to the bottom of the difference we make. Um, because it's enormous. And I think we have a lot more to be proud of than maybe sometimes we allow ourselves to believe.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Neil Carberry. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks,
0: Mark. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.